Our sermon today is taken from Romans chapter 9, verse 32-33. Here's the word of God. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Thus says the Lord. In the ESV version of the Bible, the heading for the passage that we're going to look at today is appropriately titled, Israel's Unbelief. You see, Romans chapter 9, in Romans chapter 9, Paul is addressing a very practical problem that plagued the Jews for centuries. And that is that Israel as a people, the natural descendants of Abraham, had still not embraced the promises that belonged to them through faith. And so Paul is answering the objection that if the gospel was first promised to the Jews in the Bible, then why are so many of them currently rejecting its message? the message of salvation. If the gospel was rooted in the Old Testament, why should any Jew, non-Jew, therefore believe it? If the very people who knew the Old Testament best didn't even accept it for themselves. You see how the Jewish rejection of the gospel was beginning to undermine Paul's preaching of it. Why are all the Jews rejecting the free gift that Paul was asking? And so in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9, Paul addresses the reason why the nation of Israel turned their backs on God's promises. And the answer that he gave in verses 6 through 29 probably shocked his audience. There he told them that the reason that Israel ultimately rejected God's promises was due to God's sovereign choice in election. In other words, God never intended to save every natural descendant of Abraham, according to the flesh. You see, God does not show partiality. And God's purpose in salvation was never for the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles as well. As he preached the gospel to Abraham in the Old Testament, saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So even though the Jews were the natural offspring of Abraham by birth, not all of them were Abraham's spiritual offspring by faith, according to the promise of election. And in election, God sovereignly chooses certain people from the fallen human race and graciously bestows upon them salvation without regard to their virtue, merit, or birthright. So election is God's sovereign choice to save some sinners and to punish others. Now I have to admit that for most people, this is a very hard doctrine to swallow because almost immediately we think to ourselves, that's not fair. But I think Paul wants to make it clear to us that God's actions are always just and never unfair. You see, if God owed mercy to anyone and withheld it from them, that itself would be unfair. But you see, the very definition of mercy is that it's not something that's owed to a person because God's mercy in the Bible is his compassion, kindness, and pity 
that moves him to save those who are undeserved of it. So if sinners were owed mercy from God, it would no longer be mercy, but rather justice that was owed to them. So when God elects certain sinners for salvation and allows others to perish, he never treats anyone unfairly. As R.C. Sproul once said, some people receive justice, others receive mercy. No one receives injustice. Now you might be thinking, well, okay, if that's true, if God sovereignly elects sinners to be saved, then what part do we play as human beings in salvation? And why are we commanded to believe the gospel and to exercise faith? Well, that's exactly the problem and question that Paul addresses in our passage today as he emphasizes the sovereignty of God and our responsibility as human beings to exercise faith. With that being said, we'll examine our passage today under three headings, under three headings. The irony of election, the instrument of election, and the mystery of election. So what do we mean when we say that the doctrine of election is ironic? Well, by definition, an irony occurs when something happens that has a different or opposite result than what we expected. And the Bible is full of irony. For example, in the book of Genesis, we're told that Cain was a farmer who worked the ground. And yet, after he murdered his brother Abel, a part of Cain's punishment from God was that the very ground that he worked, the very ground that he used to labor on, was cursed and would no longer yield its produce for him. You see the irony that the ground that once bore fruit for Cain had now become useless to him. Again, the book of Esther, the wicked Naaman had a gallows erected in order to hang her brother Mordecai. But in God's providence, however, ironically, it was uh, Naaman himself who was hanged on the very gallows that he had erected to um, kill murder Mordecai. And so in keeping with the teaching of the Bible, Paul points out several more ironies in Romans chapter 9 to prove to his audience that the doctrine of election was always a part of the teaching of the Bible and not a new doctrine that he himself had somehow invented. For example, in verse 12 of Romans chapter 9, he points out the irony in the lives of Jacob and Esau, who were twin brothers. You see, as the elder brother, it was Esau who had, should have inherited the blessing instead of his younger brother, Jacob. But according to God's purpose in election, it was the younger brother, Jacob, who wound up receiving the inheritance and the blessing instead. You see the irony there. This was certainly not expected, even by Isaac himself, who was determined to give the blessing to his older son, Esau. But God's plan of election that he had revealed beforehand to Sarah could not be avoided. And Paul continues this theme of election in verses 15 through 18, by showing us that from a worldly perspective, the lowly shepherd Moses was the recipient of God's mercy and compassion, as opposed to the mighty Pharaoh, even though neither one of them was more deserving of God's mercy than the other. In verses 30 and 31 of our passage today, Paul contrasts the faith of the Gentiles with the unbelief of the nation of Israel. You see, historically, the Jews considered Gentiles to have been abandoned by God and under his curse. They were even commanded to have nothing to do with the Gentiles at all on account of their immorality 
and idolatrous practices. And so the Jews who were in Paul's audience would not have expected that the Gentiles were also elected by God and adopted into his family. And they themselves were rejected on account of their unbelief. You see, the irony is that the Gentiles who had never pursued righteousness had now attained it, while the Israelites who had pursued righteousness zealously for centuries through the keeping of the law had actually failed to gain it. You see, God operates contrary to our expectations of him as fallen human beings. And the doctrine of election is completely ironic. You know, when he was asked to explain the doctrine of election, Derek Prince once said, God doesn't choose the people we might choose. And that's exactly why some of us got chosen. In other words, God didn't save us because we were any more worthy or attractive than anyone else. No, most of us were probably quite nerdy, unpopular, and weak by worldly standards. Some of us were rejected and scorned by others in society before God graciously redeemed us and called us into his very own family. This is the pattern of the Bible, right? You see, Moses committed murder. Samson acted without thinking. Joseph was filled with pride. Abraham often lied and acted cowardly. David committed adultery and murder. Rahab was a prostitute. Peter betrayed Jesus and even Paul himself persecuted the church. And yet, ironically, they were all the objects of God's mercy and election. You see, God didn't choose us because we were more noble or righteous than anybody else. No, the Bible tells us that not many of us were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of us were powerful or of a noble birth. But God chose the foolishness of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak of the world to shame the strong. God chooses the lowly and despised in the world to bring to nothing the things that are so that none of us might boast in his presence. You see, contrary to it being a source of pride, the doctrine of election is a doctrine that ought to humble us as Christians because it completely eliminates any opportunity for boasting on our part because from start to finish, our salvation is completely of the Lord. Listen to the thoughts of Charles Spurgeon on the doctrine of election. He says, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure that he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I could never find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So, in a sense, I am forced to accept the doctrine of election. You see, when you look at it from this perspective, brothers and sisters, aren't you grateful that there's an irony in election? That when God chose you, he worked contrary to the hopes, desires, and expectations of the world, that he set his love on you, even though you did not deserve it. The ironic nature of election. And that brings us to our second point, 
which is the instrument of election. You know, one of the uh, objections that people have against the doctrine of election is that they say, well, if election is true, if the only way for me to be saved is that God must first choose me, then why does he still hold me responsible for rejecting the gospel message? Well, that's the focus of Paul's argument here in verses 30 and 31. Here he emphasizes the human role in salvation and the importance of faith. And what he wants us to understand is that the sovereignty of God is completely compatible with our responsibility as human beings to embrace the gospel message. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty work together hand in hand. God is sovereign, and yet as human beings, we are responsible to believe the gospel message. They're both true at the same time. How can this be? Well, according to the Bible, there are at least two ways that anybody ever gets saved, right? And they do not contradict one another. We've already seen the first reason, that God elects certain people for salvation and effectually calls them to himself. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. You see, according to the very words of Jesus, God's election is the decisive factor in our salvation. But the other reason that sinners get saved, according to verse 30 of our text, is that they attain a righteousness by faith. Verse 30, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. You see, the Gentiles attain righteousness by embracing the gospel through faith. And so election and faith are two separate aspects of salvation. You see, when God elects sinners like you and me to be saved, he can't just bring us into fellowship with himself without any righteousness on our part whatsoever. No, God is holy and just. He hates sin, and only those who are perfectly righteous can stand in his presence. But the problem is, however, that none of us are perfectly righteous, even as elect sinners. So the reality is that our election by itself is not enough necessarily to save us. We need more than that because Christ himself is the very righteousness of God for everyone who believes in him. And his righteousness is the only righteousness that is acceptable to God for the salvation of sinners. And so God must not only elect us to be saved, but it's our responsibility to receive the righteousness of Christ through faith. We are responsible to exercise faith in Christ if we are to be saved. You know, Johann Huther, commenting on the relationship between election and faith, once said, the term elect is always used of those who have already become believers and never of those who have not yet embraced the gospel by faith. You want to know if you're elect? Believe the gospel message. Now, it's important to point out that even our faith itself is a gift from God. And yet, when God gives us faith, he transforms our heart in such a way that we ourselves freely choose to receive Christ and to accept his gracious offer of salvation. We exercise faith from our hearts. We choose Christ. We do not become mere robots who are brought into the kingdom of heaven, kicking and screaming against our wills. No, 
The Bible teaches that there is a harmony between God's sovereign election and our responsibility to believe as human beings. They both work together in salvation. Now, in the same sense, those who reject the gracious offer of the gospel are also responsible for their choices as well. How so? Well, look at the reason that Paul gives for Israel's rejection of the gospel in verses 31 and 32. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. See, Paul is explaining here why Israel rejected salvation. And he tells us that they did so because they sought it in the wrong way. They pursued a law that would lead to righteousness as opposed to embracing the gospel by faith. In other words, they sought to earn salvation by works through their own efforts at law-keeping. Now, this is amazing because Paul is telling us that there is a wrong way to seek fellowship with God. This is important in our culture when there are so many religious organizations and churches that claim to be seeking fellowship with God, right? You see, we generally just assume that if a person is seeking God, then surely he'll find God, right? That if a person wants to be a follower of God, then God is totally on board with that, right? At least he's making the effort. How many times, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, oh, you know, there are many paths to God. All religions and denominations are the same. There's more than just one way to God. That's not what Paul is saying here in this passage in verse 32. You see, Paul is saying here that there is a right and a wrong way to seek fellowship with God. And the wrong way is by works, by trying to please God through our own efforts. And any religion or denomination that teaches salvation by works is guilty of distorting the gospel message. Now, surprisingly, Paul is not accusing the Gentiles of doing this, no. He's saying that God's very own chosen people were guilty of seeking to be saved in the wrong way. In other words, the very people who possess God's word and profess to know him were guilty of rejecting the way of salvation through faith. As a Christian, I'm personally afraid what this implies about the possibility of the very same thing happening to us today. What does this say about us as Christians? Are we relying on faith alone for salvation or are we relying on something else? Like our church attendance, for example, our church membership, our willingness to come to church and to serve others, or the fact that we regularly give of our tithes and offerings, Perhaps we're relying on the faith of our spouse or the faith of our parents. I don't know how many times I've asked people um, how they came to faith, and their immediate answer to me is, oh, you know, I, I I was always a Christian. I was born into a Christian family, as if that automatically meant that they were saved. Now, don't get me wrong. It's, It's a tremendous blessing to be born into a Christian family with all of its benefits and privileges. But if we're relying on those privileges instead of faith, it could be extremely dangerous for us and potentially fatal because we might believe that we're one thing when in reality we're not 
This is the very same mistake that the Jews made about their being the natural descendants of Abraham and heirs according to God's promises. You see, they believed that these privileges somehow entitled them to God's favor and blessing. And so tragically, they ended up confusing the means of salvation with salvation itself. And if they made this tragic mistake in judgment, then so too can you and me. Imagine you were competing in a 100-meter sprint, and you worked extremely hard to get in the best shape of your life. And when the race starts and the gun sounds, you get off to this great start, and you are well ahead of all the other runners. And as you close in on 100 meters, you begin to slow down because you're absolutely certain that you won the race. But when you see the other runners go past you and keep going, you begin to realize that you are actually competing in a 26-mile marathon. So all your hard work and your excellent start were all for nothing because the goal that is set before you is still 26 miles away. Imagine how empty you would feel if this happened. But you see, this is what happens when we pursue salvation by works rather than faith, because we're seeking the right goal in the wrong way. And all of our energy and efforts that we put into it are ultimately in vain. Now, the only way for us to ever be saved is by grace through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is the instrument of election. And that brings us to our third point, which is the mystery of election. Speaking of the unbelief of the Jews in verse 32, Paul says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Here Paul attributes the unbelief of the Jews to stumbling over a stone. Now, what is the meaning of this stone that Paul is referring to? Well, the term, the term stone in the New Testament is used to refer to Jesus himself. Matthew 21, verse 42. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing. And so what Paul is implying is that in a mysterious way, there is both a positive and a negative side to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, when the gospel is offered, Jesus will either be embraced by faith or he will become a stumbling stone for those who reject him. And in order to help us to better understand this, in verse 32, Paul combines two Old Testament passages from the book of Isaiah to drive home his message. One passage speaks of hope, while the other refers to judgment. Listen to Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, the first passage that Paul uses. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious stone, of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. You see, this passage refers to Jesus being the hope and sure foundation for those who believe in him. But the other passage that Paul uses from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, 
speaks of Jesus in a different way. There Isaiah says, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You see, this passage refers negatively to Jesus being a stumbling block in judgment to the nation of Israel. So Paul's combining of these two passages together from Isaiah in verse 32 of Romans chapter 9 shows us how the gospel of Christ will be received by sinners in history. Some people will believe it and embrace it by faith. Others will reject and distort it by relying on their very own works. And to them, Christ is a stumbling block. And this is the mysterious nature of election. This is what God intended. This is his purpose. And it's also what the prophet Simeon meant when he held the baby Jesus in his arms. And he said, this child is due for the rising and falling of many in Israel. You see, Jesus Christ is both the hope of salvation for those who believe in him, and yet at the same time, a rock, a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense for those who take pride in their own achievements. You see, the gospel is a stumbling block to unbelief because the cross itself is offensive to the wisdom, strength, and pride of human beings. And the very idea of a, of a crucified Savior is contrary to everything that we believe a Savior should be. You see, Israel was looking for a, a mighty earthly king who would conquer all of their enemies. And they certainly didn't expect him to be a common man who would be born to a, to a lowly carpenter from Nazareth. And this is exactly why Christ was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, because the gospel is inherently offensive to the pride and reason of men. You see, if God is sovereign and he shows mercy to whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills, then I can't boast in my very own ability to please him by works. In fact, sovereign mercy is offensive to me because it makes me feel needy, vulnerable, and dependent on the kindness and generosity of another person. You see, sovereign mercy implies that I am a sinful, broken person who is completely unable to do anything to earn God's favor. And this runs contrary to the high opinion of my, that I have of myself as a sinner. So if I embrace the gospel, this means that I can no longer boast in my own intelligence, my own morality, or even my own goodness, which is highly offensive to me as a human being. It's highly offensive to my pride, to my ego, and my self-esteem. You know, James Boyce commenting on the false gospel once said, you want to sell the gospel? Show people how Jesus will help them succeed at work and have happy families. Show them how Jesus will help them reach their full potential. Minimize all that negative stuff about sin and judgment and substitute that with positive, uplifting message about their self-esteem, end quote. This is exactly what the prosperity gospel is so very popular worldwide, right? And their church is so full of people because the gospel that is preached appeals to the very thing that the true gospel opposes. 
See, according to the Bible, any gospel that offers no offense to the self-righteousness of men is actually no gospel at all. Now, you might be wondering, why would God deliberately place a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense in the way of his very own people, the nation of Israel? You might even be tempted to think that that's somehow quite cruel or unfair. Well, in Romans chapter 11, Paul gives this explanation for it like this. Speaking of Israel, he says, Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Did you get that? That through their trespass, salvation has come to you and to me. You see, God's purpose for Israel's unbelief and rejection of the gospel was that the gospel might come to us who were once afar off and without hope of salvation. And this is why Isaiah says that the people who once walked in darkness has seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Brothers and sisters, I hope you're beginning to see that the doctrine of election, although mysterious, is a glorious doctrine that wonderfully displays the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men in order to bring about his promise that he made to Abraham a long time ago, that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And knowing this, we can say with the Apostle Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways and inscrutable are his judgments. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the doctrine of election. It is indeed, Lord, a hard doctrine for us to swallow. And yet, Lord, it is a glorious doctrine that you work in and through good and bad things on earth, through faith and unbelief, to bring about your purposes of love to the world. You have known us, Lord, from before the foundation of the world, and you have elected us to be a part of your family. May you continue, Lord, to call people to yourself from every corner of the earth and bring them savingly home to the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, and ask these things in his name. Amen.